You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Oneofus.net and all of the shows on it are 100% subscriber supported. Please consider becoming a subscriber to oneofus.net. Keep the site and all of our great shows going and get some terrific bonus content as well. Digital Noise! It's a new week, a new Digital Noise, and this time I am joined by the handsome, talented, and super dad, Aaron! The man who did, like, a lifetime worth of adulting in four months. Yes, yes, (laughs) I have had a kid, bought a house, and started a business since January. I'm tired. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what do you got on the deck for for next month? It's like, oh, I figured out that whole uh, uh, unified field theory thing. You didn't realize that, but with the Mueller report coming in, he's going to get impeached. I'm actually replacing Trump as president. Oh, uh, well, that makes a lot of sense, actually. <laughs> I'll be like, I know that guy. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, we're here, of course, as always, to review the latest Blu-rays and DVDs, or at least recent Blu-rays and DVDs. And uh, we've got a big stack for you because this was stuff I handed off. I, I felt so bad. I hand uh, Aaron this huge stack right before I leave for South by. I was like, you get more time than normal. Yeah, you give me like three weeks, though, so it's yeah. cool. It's cool. I had time. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I was worried. I was like, this is an intimidating stack. But... Uh, I'm feeling some of these will just kind of go through relatively quickly. A lot of these are smaller titles. I imagine. I actually am slightly upset with you because one of them, you gave me one movie out of a set. Oh, yeah. And only one movie of the set, well, which he- I ended up kind of enjoying okay, and I the, wanted to see the other the thing. Two. The other two are pretty much exactly the same. Okay, that fits. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we'll get to that. We're going to start off with a big Hollywood release, which is the 4K release of the film Green Book that as much as I genuinely did, in fact, enjoy this film, it's baffling that it <sighs> it won the awards that it did at the Oscars. This is a movie that is... Like 25 years ago, sure, I could totally see this thing winning Best Picture because it was that was more the movie of its time. This feels like a script that's been sitting around since then, like, and and it's a solid script with fun performances. It's just so dated. Like uh, I think I did the review for this too, and it's hard to talk about this movie without talking about what should have happened in the real world because the movie itself is. Delightful, it's cute, it's saccharine as all hell. Mm-hmm. I don't really have problems with it other than, like, it, it could have gone further and should have. And, and aside from just like, well, it's a little weird that the main character is the white guy in the duo. But other than that, like, yeah, this is the kind of movie that you should see with your parents. And it would absolutely be a worthy time. And I highly suggest if if you enjoy these kind of fun, feel-good movies, you're going to like this movie. But it just... Yeah, I guarantee... It's, it's not the best movie of the year. I guarantee you. You're, you're one, there's a lot of you out there whose mom or dad called you and said, I don't understand. Why do people have a problem with this movie? What was racist about it? And I get it. There's nothing overtly a problem with the film. What is problematic is that 
the guy who this is uh, based on Marshallah Ali's character. This is not very close to the true story or even a good description of who this really, really talented and influential jazz musician was. Uh, and he, he, his family had a real problem with that. Well, that's because they apparently weren't talked to at all at about all. the making of this movie. There's also almost no one involved that actually is a person of color in the making of this film. Yeah. And when you saw this giant group of people on stage receiving the award for best picture at the Oscars, uh, they were all white. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, so when this won the Academy Award, the next day, I was at this big work outing where people from all over the country came to our office who were, were all in one department. And this inevitably came up. And the way I described it was, it was a movie that's meant to make white people feel a little bit better about racism. Yeah. <laughs> and I was clearly the only one at the table who was like, I have feelings about this. Because everyone else was, why do you hate Green Book, man? I thought it was a great movie. <laughs> I mean, it is a thoroughly enjoyable film, but you can't, that doesn't stop the fact that really it is a movie designed to make white people feel a little bit like less harshed out about racism. Yeah. And I mean, it's like I said, it's your mom going like, I don't, I, you know, this movie just made me mad at racism. I was like, you're not already. Like, <laughs> the movie has nothing new to tell you about that topic. And honestly, it's not even really pretending to on the whole. Um, no. It is just a road movie bet- with mismatched buddies at its core. And the stuff that really works is that stuff. Viggo Mortensen and Marshala Ali are great mismatched buddies. I wanted them to go solve crimes. Uh, I agree. Uh, the, <laughs> there's a plot with Viggo Mortensen trying to write letters to his wife. And clearly, while being an intelligent guy, he is not book smarts. Yeah. And Marashala Ali helps him basically write love letters to his wife. And it ended up being maybe my favorite running theme of the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Like it's just a really sweet, lovable film. It is. Uh, and even the moments where it tries to say something like, are a little bit better than people are giving them credit for. There's a sequence where they have a big argument on the side of the road. That's a really genuinely good sequence that does, in fact, it's the one thing in this movie where it's like, okay, they actually say something kind of insightful about racism. And, and honestly, it's good because it tackles the idea of privilege, yeah. which is something that is unfortunately lost on our people. <laughs> but uh, so it's nice to see a movie that is clearly targeted at my parents handle something which they just don't necessarily deal with or have exposure to. So it it does frame that context for them. But you're right. That's that's about it. But, you know, I want to be clear. There's nothing wrong with you enjoying this film because there's nothing, there's nothing racist about liking this film. No. The problem is not with the film in and of itself. It's the fact that Hollywood chose to give it its highest award in a year where there were plenty of contenders that actually would have shown a real... Like, okay, we actually are concerned with the way we have not been good at about treating racism in the past. Yes, and I'm <laughs> going to try not to pimp what should have been the best movie of the year again. Uh, we all know what it is. <laughs> Uh, so there's a trio of featurettes that come on this. It's not very much at all. It literally is like four minutes, five minutes, four and a half minutes of three little pieces. Although one of them is the kind of stuff that you want, which is uh, the four, uh, 420. There's no pot reference. It just happens to be 420. Uh, going beyond the green book actually takes a look at the real green book. 
Uh, I would have liked to have seen a larger history piece on Thank the you. real people. Um, something like this, especially after the controversy, really deserved a little bit of attention after the fact to go, okay, we owe it to people to do produce like a 45-minute documentary on Thank the you. real people. This is the kind of movie that I really would have appreciated – uh, a little bit of historical context, a little bit of, quite frankly, context on who these people were. Because even though I consider myself to be relatively woke, I I don't know who this musician is. I had to yeah. look him up and do research. I do, too. I'll, I'll, I and mean, so, I only know the big jazz, the jazz greats that everybody knows. Yeah, I would have liked to have had some information on the disc that really taught me why they were... Why this movie was worth being made about these individuals. Indeed. Our next movie is Far From Heaven, which is a 2002 uh, re-release. They're calling it a special edition. Uh, and it was directed by Todd Haynes, who is one of those, uh, as they call one of the pioneers of the new queer cinema. And so I would say probably the great grand like head of the new queer cinema, certainly the biggest headliner of that movement in cinema. His films have tended to be very successful, starting off with, I don't know if you've ever seen his first film, uh, Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story. I have, he, I have heard of it. He does but... it entirely with animated Barbie dolls. So my understanding, because I, I look for that a lot when don't, don't tell me that the Bob Dylan documentary came out and it was out of print because of copyright issues. I have never been able to track it down and I've always wanted to see it. I usually can find copies online if you look around a bit. Okay. Yeah. Like that nobody can like who has a, a more legal place can, can stream it for any, anybody that charges anything can't show it. Basically. Like, it's interesting. I never thought of him as the father of queer cinema. I, I've always known him as, Handling well, of the new of, queers. Ah, yeah. I've always thought of him as being this kind of out of the norm music documentarian who makes these really weird films about musicians. That, he, that, that's how I associate with I him. I mean, he has done some of that too. Uh, he did Poison. Uh, he did Safe, which is criminally underseen. Uh, Velvet Goldmine, which deals with sort of like not David Bowie, Iggy Pop, and Lou Reed, but not not. David Bowie, it is Iggy Pop, and a Louis. fantastic movie too. I mix. It's one of those films. Every time I see it, I'm like, "This is gorgeous," and the music is great, and the acting is great, and everything about it is innovative. And I still don't really like it. Yeah, it's fair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then he did "I'm Not There," and um, he Mildred Pierce, which is really awesome on HBO. Got 21 Emmy nominations. Uh, Carol was one of his more recent ones. But uh, Far From Heaven was... He did Carol? Yeah. I did not realize that. Far From Heaven is like one of those I remember seeing and going, I can see why this is not going to be everybody's cup of tea, but I really enjoyed this. Um, this is an a homage to the films of Douglas Sirk, who was a German film director who made a lot of ho- melodramas in Hollywood in the 1950s, uh, most notably All That Heaven Allows and Imitation of Life. Um and this gets really, I mean, it's set in the fifties and it's taking a look at sort of like homosexuality and, and, uh, racial, like, or what's, you know, I'm trying interracial to romance. interracial romance. Uh, the idea here, uh, Julianne Moore, who's worked with this director on a number of occasions, who's one of our greats, I quite mm-hmm. frankly think, um, plays Kathy Whitaker. She's a suburban wife and homemaker. Everybody thinks she's just Miss Perfect, although not in a bad way, not in a sort of like, oh, that's snobby bitch. She thinks no, she's no, so she's, great. Uh, she's that god-awful, effortless 
uh, homemaker who just does everything perfectly. You always kind of wish you could be her. <laughs> She's married to Dennis Quaid. Uh, he plays Frank Whitaker, who is a very successful executive at a, a TV advertising <clears throat> company. Everything seems great. One day she gets a phone call from the police saying, we've got your your husband. She's like, this this can't be right. Something's wrong. And uh, in fact, we discovered that Frank's been... Um, Trolling the gay bars uh, in a nearby city and uh, obviously has some kind of mixed up feelings inside about he may be the perfect husband and the perfect American male. But the truth is he's gay and he, of course, does not want to deal with it. Yeah. In the 50s when you can't be gay. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, Unless you really want to go into the the beatnik crowd or something. But he's Mr. All-American, right? So uh, she – they – are having, they're trying to deal with this in a sort of, I love you. We'll get through this, honey. We'll go through conversion therapy. We'll do whatever, whatever we need to do. In the meantime, uh, Kathy runs into the wonderful Dennis Haysbert. I always want Dennis Haysbert to be more stuff because he has like one of the greatest voices in show business. You know, I, I feel bad that he's the Allstate guy to me because when <laughs> I've seen him in legitimate narrative, film or television, he does a great job. Uh, he's the president of the United States to me yeah. from 24. Uh, he, he is a spec ops guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he's the, the son of their gardener who now has become their gardener. And he and Kathy kind of have like a, oh, like they just start getting along really well right off the bat. And you really think this is the type of movie that's going to turn into a full-blown, like, whirlwind romance between the two of them de- dealing with like racism issues. But really it's, it's about that this just wasn't plausible at this point for her and about like sublimated feelings and, and ideas uh, of like this that should have been and couldn't have been because of who these people thought they were supposed to be. So what I ended up taking away from this movie is this is the story of the fifties from the, and I put this in quotes, minorities. Yeah. Uh, every main character is either an African-American a gay man or a woman, which mm-hmm. in the 50s might as well have been a minority. And it, Todd Haynes does this brilliant thing that it took me half the movie to figure out where he even shoots this like a 50s drama. Uh, the way he moves the camera and edits, it, yeah. it feels almost like Leave It to Beaver in the beginning. And as he starts stripping away the layers of repression that exists in their culture, he slowly starts stripping away the that style as well, to where by the end, it, it gets to be just a really interesting drama about people that, like, and this is kind of my biggest complaints about the movie, but also, I really respect the way it did this. There isn't, it, this doesn't end shitty, where, like, everybody just is horrible. Yeah. But it also doesn't have a happy ending. It's just, no, like... These characters do what they feel is best for them, and it hurts, and it's hard, but this is what was available to them at the time. Right. And so, this movie ended up kind of coming out of left field for me. I had no idea it was about dealing with being a homosexual at that time, with the the interracial marriage at that time, or relationships. And so, I went into it, and my wife and I were going like, wait... I think Dennis Quaid might be gay. Like, right? <laughs> like Dennis Quaid is, he's gay. Oh, that's what this movie is about. Cool. 
Uh, I highly recommend this. It was a worthwhile watch. This is very much a grown-up movie, if yes. you will. Um, this is not. A, this is a Hollywood film only in the sense of 1950s Hollywood films. It is not trying to be a modern film, no. uh, and it's, it's complex. Quite beautifully made. It's very complex. It does not come to any pat conclusions, but it is fantastically well acted. We forgot to mention Patricia Clarkson plays one of her best friends in this, who's wonderful. One of Viola Davis's first screen appearances is in this as well. Um, I yeah, June Squibb, James Rebhorn. This is a, a a I think honestly probably one of Todd Haynes' best films, but it's also one of the ones that has a more niche feel than almost all of his other super niche movies. <laughs> I, I get that because yeah, like I, I can't stress enough, this is not a stereotypical uh, romance or drama or anything. It is its own beast, and it takes you on its own specific journey. Uh, even though this is called the special edition, all the special features on the Blu-ray are just recycled from the original Universal DVD release, uh, but I guess it's a special edition because it's the first time on Blu-ray, yeah. uh, which is audio commentary by Todd Haynes. There's a making of Far From Heaven, Anatomy of a Scene featurette, uh, a filmmaker's experience with with Julianne Moore and Todd Haynes talking about the making of the film, the theatrical trailer, and then other trailers for, strangely, films from uh, the 50s. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway... Let's move on to our next title today, which is The Doctor. This is a William Hurt film from back in the heyday of William Hurt films, uh, the <laughs> 1990s, when Hurt was like a just a really bankable star who yeah. you put in a movie if you wanted to win awards. Uh, and this uh, was directed by Randa Haynes, who is the... Uh, same person who worked with him on the multiple award-winning Children of a Lesser God in 1986. Uh, with Marley Mat- Matlin was in that for which she won Best Actress in that particular film. But um, strangely enough, I was actually thought this was interesting. The same director who did this movie, which is nothing in uh, in comparison to where she got started, she was a script supervisor on one of my favorite. Like low budget horror films in the seventies, let's scare Jessica to death. That was like one of her <laughs> earliest things. I love that movie. Uh, anyway, I love it. It's one of those I love it and I hate it because when I was a kid, I saw it and it fucking creeped me out for like six months. I couldn't stop thinking about it and gave me nightmares. And even now, when I whenever I watch it, I'm always like start to feel very uncomfortable watching it. I have legitimately <laughs> never heard of it. Yeah, it's a weird film. It's not overtly scary, but because of my reaction as a kid, it still gets to me. Anyway, The Doctor, based on a book, The Taste of My Own Medicine, stars William Hurt as Jack McKee. Uh, he is a very successful surgeon. He's not an asshole, but he is up his own ass. Uh, he's, he's like the uh, Doctor Strange light. It's like that. He, it reminds me of that joke where uh, the guy goes to heaven and everyone in line is being checked out by a doctor. And they're like, why is there a doctor in heaven? It's like, oh, that's just God. He thinks he's a doctor. Uh, <laughs> um, that's not a good telling of that joke, but th- no, that terrible. was the very short version of that. Badly told. Anyway, um, so he is very successful, even though he works really long hours that even his son barely knows him. You know, it doesn't even expect to see him, quite frankly, because he is never, ever around. Uh, he's got almost no bedside manner other than trying to be funny. And he's not really clear on when that's appropriate or not. But all that changes when he figures out that he himself is very sick and has uh, throat cancer. 
And this starts to change his whole perspective as he has to become a patient and see what patients go through with very impersonal doctors. Like the doctor he's going to is just horrible. Like has no bedside. She's like a Terminator. (laughs) And, um, he becomes very close friends with another patient who's who's in the final stages of cancer, played by Elizabeth Perkins. And I guess it's all supposed to be kind of moving and telling, but I really kind of felt like this is a movie for, well, doctors. Okay. So <laughs> I had a mixed reaction at best of this movie, and uh, at the time, I blamed this on the fact that, like, I've, I've lost family to cancer. I've gone through this journey with people before. So the first half of this film is just okay this is what it's like to go to chemo and this is what it's like to do this and if you have any experience with that it's super boring i was very ready for it to move on when it got to the the latter half where it became less about him either dying or dealing with this disease and more about him realizing patients deserve compassion basically I started to get a lot more involved and like at that point, okay, like I cared about his journey and I was more interested in the characters, but Jesus is that first hour really rough. It is. And you feel like it should be a lot better. Uh, his buddies are like Mandy Patinkin and Alan Arkin who are both known for being great at comedy. Phenomenal. And it's not very funny. Whenever it tries to be funny, it's not very funny. It's just like, okay. Yeah. And even that second half, I'm like, it all just feels like a, like a gentle wrap to the knuckles of people who work in the medical profession. It does. <laughs> it, it's kind of like, see, doctors, you shouldn't be a dick. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I I guess that's a message that was needed. I guess. <laughs> it's, I'm like, who is this for besides them? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> the rest of us are like, yeah, no shit, movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's only a little commentary here from the director and the original theatrical trailer. This is from Kino Lover. Sure, if you're a big William Hurt fan, I mean, it's not a terrible movie by any stretch. It's imagination. Just, it's just who's okay. this for? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, moving, moving on, we have uh, Marquise. I'm saying that right? Marquise? Marquise? I. It's Mar- it's, French. it's Marquise. Yeah. Marquise. Um, and not, I, I first I was like when I was asking this, I thought this was that film about a Marquis de Sade. That I did too. I saw years ago, and I was like, oh, cool. I remember kind of liking that. <laughs> it is not. This is a 1997 film, uh, French film by v- uh, Vera. Uh, am I getting that right? Vera Belmont. Oh, I have no idea. I'm just uh, going to watch you hang yourself out there. <laughs> Great. Um, she's sort of a second new wave, French new wave movement director kind of thing. Like really, really into the whole French new wave by Truffaut and Godard and stuff like that. And she was kind of like one of the people, well, I wasn't old enough to be part of that, but I want to do that kind of thing <laughs> now. Um, this was a big film for actress at the young actress at the time, Sophie Marceau, who was so beautiful. It's just stunning. She's oh, and- this great, graceful, like, what are those people you know immediately when you see her that she's French? There's just yeah. something so goddamn right? French about her. And it, it, it was weird watching her in this, where even though I, at best, have mixed feelings about this movie, uh, compared to the only other time I've really seen her as a major character in a movie, which was when she was a James Bond villain. Right. Like, she oh, was she so much. A, yeah, she was the main villain of that movie. Oh, okay. I don't remember. It's uh, been a while. That's okay. It was the one with uh, Denise Richards. You don't need to remember it. Fair enough. Um, but <laughs> she is a much better actress in French. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this 
this this is being released by Film Movement as part of their Film Classic series. Now, Film Movement, if you don't know, is one of those companies that puts out almost exclusively, well, exclusively, very small art films that are very highly regarded by critics, but that no one ever sees. And uh, that's kind of their thing. And I, I like it when I get their stuff, because I almost never have heard of the films that they send. And, and about one? half the, no, and about half the time, I'm like, oh, that was really good. I'm super glad I saw that. Um, and half the other half the time, I'm like, well, that was dull and not for me. Um, this kind of falls somewhere in, in between, even though they consider this to be like a forgotten film that we need y'all to see. Uh, so this is from the area of the, 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 the period of time from the writer Moliere, uh, who is of course considered to be one of the all time great French playwrights. He was running a theatrical troupe, uh, doing comedy, uh, and, he encounters Mark, the titular Marquise, Sophie Marceau's character, who is basically her parents are prostituting her, where she yeah. goes out and dances in front of townspeople and then the highest bidder gets to sleep with her. Um, and he buys her from, from her, uh, or rather his lead actor, who's sort of trollish, uh, buys her from her, from her parents with his help. Which, which they, it, it's weird. Like, you say he buys her, which I, I want to make clear that it's, Oh, and I just blanked on the actual word. Uh, it, sorry, there's consent. Yeah. Like, it, it's more She's okay like, with it. He, he does that French thing you see that happens in plays at this time where they see each other and instantly fall in love. And they're just like, we are going to get married now, and I will buy you so that we can be married. Yes. Uh, the, the character's name, a gross Rene, which is appropriate because he's, like I said, little and troll-like, played by Patrick Timsett. I mean, he's not disgusting. No, like, but it, actually, so their relationship is the thing about the movie I ended up enjoying the most because yeah. they have this really unique kind of poly relationship, and it's really cool the way they handle it, The that... Uh, and, and I'm just jumping ahead in the plot, but basically they clearly love each other, but she is fucking everybody in yeah. this movie. And he's, and they're, and they're okay with they're it. They're really weirdly yeah. modern about the whole thing. Yeah. Like, well, yeah, we're like fucking actors. That's what we do. <laughs> we fuck a bunch of people. It's not that weird, but she's still like, no, I genuinely do love my husband. I am not yeah. leaving him for someone else. Uh, despite the attention of up and coming playwright Racine, who's also a very famous French playwright as well, played by, uh, Lambert Wilson, who is one, another guy you'll probably recognize. Yeah, he was you. the Merovingian in the Matrix films. <laughs> to which, I paused this movie and said out loud, holy shit, that's the Merovingian. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Who desperately wants her all to himself. But she's like, yeah, we can fool around, but you can't have me. I'm married. Um, so this is actually based on a true story. A lot of it is, is her, not a lot is known about the real Marquise. Like a lot of this is, is supposed for the sake of like being able to make a good drama. But on the whole, the facts are accurate here. Um, it seems like it, the type of person we would have liked to have known a lot more about in real life. She seems very interesting. She's, a bit, she's interesting famous. Character. She was like uh, at the time talked about as the most beautiful woman in the world that everyone wanted. Like everybody was obs- She was like a very Helen of Troy type. You know? I was thinking Cleopatra. It works. Sure. Uh, and of course she died tragically young um, because that's like what you, you do. do. Yeah. <laughs> and, and with lots of question. Uh, like the one thing that's like the movie takes a lot of dramatic license with is how she died because honestly nobody knows um there's some people there's a lot of urban legend around how she died it could have been completely natural it could have been murder it could have been suicide it's very unclear but this movie takes a long time to get to where it's going that is for sure it's 122 minutes at least 30 of which are way just 
beating a dead horse over stuff that we already get the idea. And there, I felt like there wasn't a really overarching narrative to the movie so much as just, it's just, this is life in this period, which, you know, it's this period of France. It's a costume drama. If this is, if that kind of movie is your bag, you're probably going to really enjoy this because there's a lot of fun digs at the aristocracy and at uh, how silly this pomp and circumstance really is where like, you know, they're having a conversation with the King while he's taking a shit and someone's wiping his ass. And like, yeah, this is the kind of thing that happened because you don't really think about what life was actually like back then. However, that was not enough for me. It was also not a very pointed satire. Like there's no undercutting like, Oh, but we're saying this about this bigger thing. It's like, no, you're not really saying a lot. This is the, movie that made me realize that I don't really have any interest in this time period. <laughs> and so when there's not anything else there... Yeah. Unless they're fighting like, a giant mechanical wolf. Or, you know what I kept expecting <laughs> would happen? I thought this would... Because I don't know much about French history, I'll be honest. I'm an ignorant. But I expected this was going to butt up to when they started lopping the aristocracy's heads off. And like, right. oh, is this building to that? Well, some of these and characters they, you they, were hoping... They kind of talk about that and they hint that that's where they're going. But no, it really is just this tale of this actress. Yeah, that's true. Which it's... Like, I can't see it any better than if you like costume dramas, sure, check it out. But if you don't, you probably want to move on. Uh, there's an interview with the director, and there's an essay by author and professor Lawrence Marie. And that's about it. Uh, let's move on to our next movie, which is Over the Limit. This is a documentary that I was interested in because it called it the Black Swan of sports documentaries. I was like, you have my attention. I'm a big fan of Black Swan. And the idea, like, okay, so here's this. A uh, Russian gymnast, young teenage gymnast who is being trained by two matronly older women who are treating her like in a way that should be illegal is yeah, the impression that you get. And it, it is abuse. And the only, <laughs> the only thing keeping it from just being utterly, truly child abuse is that she is a 22 year old woman who looks 15. Right. They're not <laughs> actually physically abusing her other than making her do like exercise too hard. I mean, nobody's whipping her or anything, oh, just, but the psychological abuse yeah. is honestly not that surprising to me at all. I mean, I can't help but feeling most of the critics watch this. I'm like, you clearly didn't really pay a, t- a lot of attention well, in gym. Did so, you? So, so that, that was, <laughs> that was actually the thing that I struggled with, with this movie is, Every few minutes, I would turn to my wife and go, I, I feel like you should just watch uh, Stick It and be like, it's like Stick It, but 10 times worse. And <laughs> that's the real world. Because <laughs> like every scene, that's all I could think of was like, oh, yeah, this is what Stick It talked about. I, I just kind of like, okay, so being an Olympic gymnast is really hard. That was kind of my takeaway from it. It's like, yeah, you get to get people that will push you to the limit, which, you know, when you're a very young person, you really require around you, especially today with all the, all the distractions. I honestly was kind of like, yeah, I mean, it's abuse, but it's abuse. She, she knew exactly what she was in for and wanted to get to where she wanted to be. I never felt like watching this that she was like, someone help me. I got to get out of the situation. I, I, I didn't feel that. I felt like this movie was trying to be an indictment against the culture that is professional gymnasts, mm-hmm. gym gymnastics. And like, it is a shit environment. They treat people horribly. It's outrageously yeah, unfair. But the thing is, is we've known about this for a long time. So 
why? It's, like, what's the point of this? I learned nothing new in watching this film. It was interesting. I mean, we see the same behavior but, in any given sports film. I mean, like, oh, you watch football movies and the coach is always like, you bunch of fucking pansies, you're losers, yeah. and you're fucking, like, have no dicks, and yada, yada. And this is essentially the equivalent which, of that. Which, and, and <laughs> but, I would say that, I, I don't want to say that, like, that we should normalize that. No. That's okay. I'm it's not saying not. that either. It's just that... We know. Yeah. And to me, like, the point of a documentary really is to shine a light on something that people don't normally know about. So they get exposed to this other way of life. This is a way of life that is well known. Why? I mean, it's, it, it it's is what it is. A documentary further illustrating what we saw in a much more, uh, in emotionally involving way in I, Tanya, and quite frankly. Stick it. Yeah. And I guess <laughs> stick it. Um, <laughs> You know, it's a elder matronly woman saying things like, go fuck yourself with your shaking. You're going to die, bitch. And yeah. things like that where it's like, yeah, I mean, it's horrible. But the, you see this woman, she's at, she's 20 when this is being filmed. Um, really only has so much effect on her. Like, in the whole, oh. she's like, yeah, I hear this every day. It's not that big a deal. So the, the other thing you have to realize, though, is that we are looking at this from the point of view of Americans. Yeah, true. I'm very curious that... Like, this is a Russian film. So as a Russian where you know who these people are, she I don't want to spoil the ending, but she's a public figure. She's well-known. She has to be. And so I wonder if this strikes home a lot more. Like, us finding out that Michael Phelps is horribly abused all the time. Right. Or something like that. We're like, oh, okay, I, I know him, so therefore I get it. I found the most startling part was really, you find out uh, one of her parents is dying of cancer, and the coach, one of the coaches in particular is much worse than the other, starts using it against her to, to like, mine anger. Actually, the most startling thing for me was finding out that the... So there are two coaches. There's the coach, who's kind of like an assistant coach, and then there's the clearly like the gym owner or the head coach who dresses like she thinks she's a pimp. Right. I spent half the movie thinking that was her like pageant mom who was just like the worst. Yeah. And so when I realized that wasn't her mom, that was admittedly like the plot twist of the decade for me. (laughs) (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. I was like, wait, 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 what? What? Pause. Is that not her mom? (laughs) So we're going to move on next to Arrow Films' release of Phantom Lady. Man, I'm loving all this kind of obscure crime uh, crime and film noir that they've been putting out lately. I haven't loved all of it, but some of these are really good. And I actually genuinely enjoyed 1944's uh, Phantom Lady, directed by Robert, uh, oh boy, Sidemak? Smak? I don't know. Sidemak! Sidemak! Uh, German film director, so what are you going to do? Made quite a few films in the 1940s, such as the much better known The Killers in 1946. Um, basically, Alan Curtis has left the house after a fight with his wife on his anniversary. Uh, he ends up meeting uh, a woman in a bar who is also clearly in a really bad way about something. And she, he's like, well, I'll tell you what, we're both unhappy. Uh, why don't we go do something together. I got tickets to the show. My wife wouldn't go. We just had a big fight. Why don't you come with me? She's like, great, but we're not even going to know each other's names. Like, I don't want any connection with you. We can have the night together and kind of like misery shared is halved as they say, but that's it. And he's like, that's totally fine. And, uh, like some strange stuff happens. I like at one point, like 
the dancer on stage gets weirdly irrationally angry when hey, she sees hey, that she was wearing the same hat. She's wearing the same it's hat. A thing. I, I, it was back then. I don't think it is so much <laughs> anymore. But she gets really pissed off about that. Um, anyway, so after that, they go their own separate ways. He goes home and finds uh, this police inspector played by Thomas Gomez, who's like, "Oh, uh, somebody killed your wife with one of your ties, and it kind of looks like you." And uh, even though you'd think, okay, well, I was with this guy, this girl all night, and there's lots of people saw me, no one who he talked to at length and had, like, real memorable experiences with that night remembers ever having seen seen a woman with him at all. Well, specifically, even- they even they, – they f- it's not just they don't they don't remember the woman. They flat out say, no, you were alone. Yes. And uh, so he is tried and sentenced to death. But his spunky secretary, played by Ella Raines, who, of course, is totally in love with him, is like, I'm going to get to the bottom of this because I believe he's innocent and starts figuring out that there is indeed a conspiracy of silence going on. And if only she can find out who this mysterious phantom lady is and talk to her, can she assure the freedom of her, her boss who she's in love with. And I actually found this kind of a charming, fun little film noir. It's it's probably – it's it felt – at even 87 minutes, a little longer than it needed to be at points, but it was one of those, okay, I'm not familiar with this one at all, and I feel like this is one I would love to see a remake of this, like a modern you day know, take on it. I'm with you. Uh, so the two biggest weaknesses this film had is, one, what the mystery ended up being was not as good as where I thought they were heading in the beginning, mm-hmm. and that was a big disappointment. And True. the the character who ultimately plays the killer... Uh, does not do the best job. They have this quirk where every five minutes that they're on screen, they look at their hands menacingly. And so the very second they appear, you're like, you're oh, like, that's they're, they're, they're the killer. The guy. Like, right, yeah, it right. gives away the killer like right after the halfway mark almost. But the moment that uh, Kansas, is what they call her, becomes the main character of the movie and it kind of stops following the husband, you're right. I got into this movie. That actress does a great job and she's charming and funny and watching this basically executive assistant be an amateur detective was really entertaining. Like I, I got into this movie and, and I'll admit that I wanted it to be more, but I still enjoyed what I got. Yeah, this actress, uh, who's the most notable thing here, Ella Raines, was one of those people everybody thought was going to be a big star. And for whatever reason, it just never happened. She was in a lot of big films. She was in a great Preston Sturgis comedy, Hail the Conquering Hero, in the John Wayne Western, Tall on the Saddle, uh, and, and several other movies. But she kept having films that were like, yeah, they're good. But like weren't major hits, and what happens happens. It's like she did you just you. If she had just had that one big hit, she probably would have become one of Hollywood's big stars because she definitely has that je ne sais quoi quality about her. I can see know? her doing that thing where she's great in a bunch of movies that are just okay. Yeah, that's kind of it. Where she just never had that real breakout hit of a movie. Uh, she ended up working on television for a really long time, and then later on the stage. But anyway, uh, point is, this Arrow film comes with Dark and Deadly: Fifty Years of Film Noir, which is an archival documentary from the '90s that talks to people like Robert Wise, Edward uh, Dmitrik, Dennis Hopper, and Brian Singer, talking about the, <laughs> the whole neo noir fad that was. That was basically popular when, like, The Usual Suspects and stuff was coming out. Um, and uh, 
there's also an hour-long 1944 radio adaptation of Phantom Lady, taking from a Lux radio theater broadcast that stars Alan Curtis and Ella Raines playing the lead roles of that. There's a still gallery from it, um, and there's an insert booklet as well. So, honestly, fun little film noir. If this is your thing, this is a fun one to discover. Yeah, if you like classic film, check it out. And now I'm going to spend the rest of the day debating what a remake of this would look like. And I want it now. Yeah, I know. I'm like, this would be actually... Because you see there's a lot of stuff you'd have to change around, but at the same time, I'm like, oh, I could totally see this being a great modern-day twisty but fun thriller with an awesome female protagonist. It's a good time to do it, too. Yeah. Uh, Our next film is also an all-time classic, and that is... Barbed wire. Oh, <laughs> I had never seen barbed wire. You, I, I saw this when it came out. Uh, Did you really? Yeah. You said to yourself, "I gotta see, pay for this movie." I was like ten. Of course, your parents I did. let you go see it. No, not in theaters. I oh, rented it. Oh, fair and enough. So I, I, I saw this because at the time. Pamela Anderson was considered, like, one of the sexiest women out there. She was one of the biggest stars in the world. And if you were my age and were a guy or were into girls at all, you were into Pam Anderson. Yeah. And you were like, this was pre-internet. We had no other way to see You're her naked. Point, you were like, so we're going to go see Barbed Wire, You were at the point of, like, I'm I'm having talks about going through puberty. I yeah. feel like watching Barbed Wire could help like, kickstart that. I, I'm not going to lie. I, I legitimately remember renting this from my local video store with the express desire to see her naked in it. Oh, yeah. And this movie makes no mistake about that is exactly what you're going to get. The opening fucking credits of this film feature her doing a full-on strip tease on stage. <laughs> to call out, though. For all that, that is what the advertising and the opening is. She spends maybe two seconds of this movie actually naked. Like, there's the stripping scene, which is a stripping scene, but it's like uh, Jessica Alba in Sin City. No, you actually full-on do see her breasts. And then at one point, she does a little flash. Okay, were you looking away because your wife was in the room? Because (laughs) there was a lot of Pamela Anderson's boobs in this movie. I remember being disappointed originally when seeing this. Okay, well, I'm I'm just telling you, there was a lot of boobs in this movie that I could see. Um, (laughs) This is a, a Pamela Anderson vehicle based on a Dark Horse comic book series of the same name, very loosely indeed. It was deeply panned upon release, uh, nominated for several Golden Raspberry Awards, but it has since kind of gotten a cult following as one of those movies that it may be, well, it is terrible, but it's one of those films that, like, they clearly spent just enough money on it at, that it's that it's quite watchable, and it moves so quickly from one super silly thing to the next that it's hard not you're, to be entertained by it. You're right. It, it is fun, and it is uniquely 90s. Oh, yeah. Uh, set in the far-flung year of 2017 <laughs> during the Second American Civil War, which I guess you could argue yeah, actually yeah, kind of yeah, happened. Yeah. Um, Barb, Barb Wire, that's her, that's her, the name she's known by Pamela Anderson in this, uh, owns a, a nightclub for super badasses in the last free city in the U.S., uh, where she also works as a mercenary bounty hunter, and it looks like probably a little bit of prostitution on the A little side bit of prostitution. Well. Um, <laughs> the chief of police regularly raids her club, uh, played by Xander Berkeley, who always plays kind of wormy guys, if you will. Um, and they have a relationship, but it's one of those, like, I'm raiding your club, but just give me what I want, and we can go. And can I get a blowjob? Uh, that sort of thing. fucking Django Fett is in this. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, well, that's the thing. is so, like, <laughs> what shakes up her way of living is that uh, some fugitives 
show up, uh, Django Fett, yes, uh, what is his name? Uh, Tamara Morrison, uh, also known as Aquaman's dad. Yeah, Aquadad. <laughs> and, uh, Victoria Rowell as a, uh, a female doctor who, uh, who's a government scientist who knows about a bioweapon, uh, that the government is, is trying to use that would be really bad. And they're trying to get away to Canada. Uh, she's convinced because she apparently used to be kind of a freedom fighter, but then started just working for herself. And they're like, no, you got to come help. And then ultimately she ends up starting to help. And something about a pair of contra- uh, contact lenses that'll let you go through the yeah. airport security, which it is not, which is the worst MacGuffin ever, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't That's matter. That's not why you watch this movie. It's a lot of like cars, like going over ramps and blowing up sideways. It, it and- also has the most hilariously poorly edited scene I have ever seen in my entire life. When she meets the uh, Django Fett guy, I'm sorry, Aquadad, what's his name? Please repeat uh, it. Tamora Morrison. Thank you. Tamora Morrison. Um, like it clearly makes sense in the dramatic moments where she storms off and then she'll turn back and say a line and then he'll walk up to her and she storms off. But when you actually sit back and think about it, the two of them basically just walk back and forth in a six foot pace for like two minutes straight. Yeah. It's the dumbest thing. It's not smart. Um, there's a lot of familiar faces of, from B movies here. Uh, like Udo Kier plays her kind of like her toady assistant. Her. Oh. <laughs> it's like weird to see him again. He's like, he genuinely loves this woman. He's like the most loyal guy in the world. And because he's Udo Kier, you keep waiting for him to do something evil. But you know, <laughs> it, it made me realize I love Udo Kier when he's having fun because yeah. he's just like smirking and giggling through this entire movie. And it's delightful to watch him on screen. Uh, Steve rails back has been in no end of really B and C and Z movies plays like a, like a, a bad Colonel because which a role he's played like eight times. Uh, Clint Howard has a small role in this and, and tiny Lister appears in this film wait, wait. as well. His name is tiny. He must be the guy who runs the gangs then. Uh, he is a, the, a bouncer at the bar. Really? Never yeah. mind. Yeah. I know you're bad. thinking of the hugely overweight. Yeah. Uh, the, anytime I hear the name big tiny, fatso. I'm like, yeah, God, uh, yeah, this is honestly, if you're one of those people like this, uh, we need a beer night movie for, for this is the perfect beer so night movie. My favorite thing about this movie, and this is why I say it's the most nineties movie I've ever seen is in, in this, in this world where it begins with Pamela Anderson stripping and is arguably can't not be sexist. The line that you can't cross with her is you can't call her babe. Like, you can pick her up for prostitution. You can give her money. You can do anything you want. Yeah, but her whole but thing if is, you call, call her call babe. babe. <laughs> I was like, I hate that fucking movie. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, it's the pig from the city. No. That, and it goes nowhere. No, that whole bit. With it. It's not it's even, just, I mean, even Back to the Future 2 and 3 found a way for the whole chicken thing to come to no, something. What it was is, it's the 90s, and we want to say that we're not being sexist anymore. And sure, we hate being called babe, because it's objectifying, even though she walks I around, am nothing but a sex object. Yeah, she walks around <laughs> the whole movie in a boosty, leather boosty, <laughs> and constantly uses her sex to get what she wants. Like, and I, 
this is by no stretch a good movie, but you know already if you're going to like it. And if you are, then shit, go get it. You're going to enjoy the hell out of it. I don't disagree. <laughs> um, sadly, the video game that was based on this movie was never released. There was a video game? Yeah, they oh. never they finished it, and they never actually put it out. Probably good? Probably for the best uh, from GT Interactive. This is a Mill Creek Blu-ray, which means it's just the movie. That's it. They're like, you know, so... I- I'm not a fan of that trend now. Like, do you remember when DVDs and Blu-rays had like fun menus and special things? Well, a lot of them, a lot of them still do. This is just Mill Creek's kind of thing. Their their deal is these are super cheap to buy. Like, so you can buy this for like five, six bucks. That's about what it's worth. And yeah, you're like, I just want to own a copy of this movie. And some movies are like that. Do I need a stack of extras for barbed wire? Not really, but it could be kind Fair. of a fun movie to have in your collection. <laughs> Fair point. I say that. I would not have watched any of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true, right? Uh, Although I kind of want commentary. Well, speaking of a company that really, once again, going back to them, who really does deliver all that stuff is Arrow. And they put out a collection of films that I'm not personally that crazy about, but I can see that they needed a release. That's Sister Street Fighter. This is a spinoff of the Sonny Chiba, much more successful series, Street Fighter, in which... This character, this spinoff character, uh, Lee Hong Long, who is, uh, in most of the Street Fighter films as kind of like this up and coming train, like fighter he's training under. Now it's, she gets her own thing. In fact, Sonny Chiba appears in this first Sisters Street Fighter Quite movie. Quite a bit, actually. But playing a completely different character. Oh. Yeah. Really? He is he, not playing the character from Street Fighter. So, so I, I watched part of Street Fighter, uh-huh. but the transfer at the time was so terrible. Yeah. I have never revisited any of them. Worth worth revisiting. They're similar to this, although... I mean, I hate to say it. They are better than these. Um, But this... The one thing that... But there's... All right. So there are two things I have to say about these movies. Okay, three. First off, this is that character, not Sonny Chiba. The the actress here um, is the character uh, uh, from... Uh, the sister, she's supposed to be the same person from the Street Fighter movies, right? And so she's a badass that even the cops are like, we need your help. You're the only one who can help us. So like, she's like a superhero, basically. Yeah. It, um, it, it's a, it's a 70s and 80s kung fu movie, which means that yeah. if you were a kung fu person, you were, if you knew kung fu, God, if you were a kung fu person, uh, if you knew kung it's fu. It's okay. Everybody was kung fu fighting. You were, <laughs> you were automatically a special, a special agent to like hunted down criminals internationally. Or, or you were someone who worked for a guy who had like a big iron claw or yeah. something and had an <laughs> island full of like other people like you. Um, so yes, she's that she's not one of the things a lot of people have said that they still love about this film is that she's not sexualized at all. Unlike a lot true. of other films of this time where if there was a lead female, she was super sexualized or even later like barbed wire. Uh, she's not, she's like in no way does that enter into the plot. Although there is nudity from other characters. She is not one of them. Um, Second, this is basically like watching a Chinese version of uh, uh, of the '60s Adam West Batman show in terms of like the way it's filmed, the way the sets are designed, the way the like the 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 way the fights play out. I mean, it. it I feel like this needs to be re-edited. There needs to be a Batman version of this, where in the fights it constantly has the big bam. Pow! I mean, it's even the music is super goofy and like I'm oh, like, like it, it, it begins with the da 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 over the opening credits. I I don't know, man. I I'll be honest. I'm just I I found this mildly amusing, but on the whole, I was ready for it to be over an oh. hour before it was over, and it's only 81 minutes. And I I watched about half of the second film in the series. 
uh, and did not, in fact, watch the others. But I read a lot about the other ones that are included here. It's Sister Street Fighter, Sister Street Fighter Hanging by a Thread, Return of the Sister Street Fighter, and then Sister Street Fighter Fifth Level Fist, which, in fact... Although it was still made by a lot of the same people and stars the same actress, she's playing a completely different character in that one that is not Sister Street Fighter, so I'm not sure why they call it. I that. have to admit, I really liked this movie. Okay. I had a lot of fun with it. it. It's one of those kung fu movies that you saw a lot of in the 70s that I adore the genre where, like, yes, it has all the problems. Where, yes, she fights eight people and they approach her one at a time. Yeah. Like, and yes, the bad guy is a stereotype who literally does have a metal claw. He does, in fact, have a metal claw. <laughs> it's true. So, I mean, you, it's, it's that movie. It's along the same lines as, like, Master of the Flying Guillotine. Yeah. Which I like much better. any of the Shaw Brothers. I do, too. Because it's got the awesome but, flying guillotine. But it, it takes place in, at the time, modern-day world instead of ancient China or Japan. And, and you got I, I will admit, she is a genuinely talented, for real, and real-life martial artist. She is the only person in this whole film, other than Sunny Chiba, who seems to have any real ability at it. Everyone else, you can tell they're kind of shooting around yeah. their lack of ability. Uh, in fact, it's embarrassing when Chiba is fighting other people in this. I mean, he really is. Sunny Chiba was an incredible performer. And he's there's a scene where he takes out a whole room full of guys who clearly have no fucking clue what they're doing. And he is just like, the guy is just like water watching him work, right? The problem is, once again, they didn't really, even back then, they never, they hadn't quite gotten the mastery of shooting these type of films yeah, yet. No, so there's so much of like, okay, we can totally see where punches and kicks are not even vaguely connecting. <laughs> I, I, I feel like this is the mantra of this episode where like... <laughs> You know in advance if this is right for you. Uh-huh. Like, if you like those 70s goofy kung fu films, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Although it sounds like, Chris, you were kind of meh on it. I, like, I watch a lot of martial arts films, and I I, 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 I can be a little snobby about yeah, them. But I, I will admit, like, if, if that is not your kind of movie, you need to stay the hell away, because this is a niche movie. If you like the Street Fighters, if, like, those are the ones you consider to be the, like, the high bar for martial arts, then you will also like these. I was never as big on the Street Fighter movies as everybody else was. I preferred those period piece yeah. Shaw Brothers things at the time. And then, of course, later, the, as far as I'm concerned, the, the high point of martial arts films was, like, in the 80s and early 90s, when we started introducing, like, when, when Jackie Chan and Sammo Hung and people like that were yeah. coming into becoming superstars. That stuff to me is like wow. I mean, Gordon Liu was great and all, but like this hey, is that was the about, highest like, point for me. It was Rumble in the Bronx and Police Story. Sure, that I from yeah. Like you're right. I, I get that, but like I, I still find value in this. I I, I, I do too. I, I find myself wanting to watch some of the others in the series, and I really want to actually go back and watch the Street Fighter movies, which I have never seen. I, I will loan you the other discs so you can yeah. watch them. Um, <laughs> but so this is Arrow which means they put together a really sweet little package of stuff here. Uh, They've been doing a bunch of Sonny Chiba films of late, and so this is kind of part three of a series of short documentaries that they really should have just assembled into one fucking documentary. It's Sonny Chiba, Life in Action, Volume 3. It's only like ten minutes. It's an interview with him uh, where he talks about where he discovered and fostered this actress, Atsuko Shihomi. Uh, there's 10 minutes interview with the director, uh, where he talks about a lot of his films that where he often prominently had, had women in the lead. Uh, there is a, the third interview of the set is with the co-screenwriter of the first three films. There's a, believe it or not, almost 12 minutes of isolated score highlights. 
Like, okay. Somebody was like, that's a thing that should be on here. There's the original trailer. Those are always fun. Still in poster gallery. Um, there is a R-rated version of the initial film here included as well, which is um, a censored English language version. Oh, I was wondering if you were going to talk about this. I Googled it. Was, I found this story and was looking into it. It's kind of interesting. Okay. So, so basically the deal is, is in one of the scenes with the villain talking in the background – there is a poster of a lady naked. Well, it ends up that the woman in that poster at the time the photo was taken was like 16. Oh. And so in UK, you cannot show that at all. So they they announced that they had a special cut and you cannot get the unedited version in the UK. Hmm. Like it is illegal to distribute. Huh. Whereas in America, and I read this terrible review of the movie that bemoaned this practice, that they're pushing this movie here in America because they can release it. And so that is essentially the difference, is they cut out like a 30-second clip where this was in the background. And I'm not going to lie, out of pure curiosity, I was looking for it. Like, I got to see this now. Yeah. What's I so, totally I mean, missed it. I never saw it. And I, I was looking for it the whole I movie. I don't even remember seeing a nude <laughs> poster in the background. I remember at one point being annoyed that the Tracy Lords movies I grew up like a wa- watching ended up being no longer available. It's, it's, but it's, we, it's didn't we didn't know. We didn't know. There's also the U.S. trailer. There's the the different German opening titles, the German trailer. Uh, the, the second disc, which has the rest of the film, has isolated score highlights and trailers for all the films. So I don't know what the deal is with the isolated score highlights. uh, I was actually texting my friend how amazingly racist the score was when it began with that (laughs) da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Like, this is not a good score. Somebody from ERA is a big fan of of scores. That's fine. It's not my thing as much with this type of thing, but hey. You know what? To each their own. (laughs) Uh, Bouncing back to Mill Creek, which means another bare bones release, but of a film that I think is very much worth seeing, is their re-release of The Rundown. Now, this is the film I would... I, I think really cemented the fact that, you know what? The Rock is going to be a movie Dude, star. It, it legitimately launched two careers and kind of killed one. Okay. I, that's You mean uh, Rosario Dawson is the other? Yeah. But but, she, like, I think The Rock and Rosario Dawson had a really promising career as kind of semi, either A-list or mostly A-list actors. And Sean William Scott, who does not do a bad job No, I here, think he's actually great in that. Yeah, but he, like, disappeared after this and yeah. like he, he got into the more indie thing i was like what's the one comedies? movie you can think of with sean william scott after the rundown that's really worth saying it's good and that was 10 years later yeah, yeah. but like for that period like I, I don't know what happened but just either he had a really crap agent and but his career tanked after this when quite frankly it should have gone up he's great in this uh dwayne johnson back then still being credited as the, the rock, rock which still is weird i'm still like no, no, you're not wrong it's, yeah it's weird and remember when we were all upset that he was like no you can't call me the rock anymore dwayne johnson we we're like no dude you're the rock we love the rock and now it's like weird you're like they you, used to call you the rock i have to be honest it's really weird to watch the watch dwayne johnson with hair yeah like well, and like, he was, it's funny, no, like, you're supposed to be bald. He was a more active wrestler back then, but he is twice the size now yeah. that he was in this movie. You're like, Jesus Christ, you got so much bigger. Um, but he's still pretty fucking big. He plays a bounty hunter who collects debts, and he's kind of in a position where he's like, one of those guys, like, 
I owe this guy something, so I got to do this to get yeah, he, free. He's he's the sweet badass who doesn't really want to hurt people, yeah. but he's stuck in a situation, and he happens to be like the biggest person on the planet. And after an opening sequence that has a, a nice little, like, really can be interpreted as anything but a official passing of the torch Arnold Schwarzenegger cameo moment, yeah. where Schwarzenegger, who appears at no other scene in this film, passes by him as he's going in and says, good luck. Well, and I remember that was, that made the news when yeah, this came out. It did. It was a big deal. Um, even though Schwarzenegger went on to do quite a few other action movies after this, but at the time it seemed like a good idea. And anyway, he goes to the bar. It's a great sequence where he's got to get a, uh, from a championship NFL player, his ring is collateral because he can't pay his gambling debts. And he basically beats up the whole well, team. Although you're cutting out like this opening is remarkable for the fact that it tells you Everything you need to know about him as a character in about two minutes' time. It does. That's true. Because he's polite. He's calm. He's assertive. Then he goes in, because the guys he's trying to collect debt from are all, not NFL players, but... Um, oh, I thought they were NFL players. I thought that they're he's college. Got- they're, they're college players. Uh, it just says championship ring. I could have that was NFL. he goes to the bathroom and calls his boss and is like, look... These guys are all having championship games in the next two days. I will fuck up their lives if I do this. Can I not? Yeah. Can we wait? And then he's like, no, no, you have to. He's like, okay, cool. And then he goes and just destroys them. Yeah, exactly. But it's, it's, and, it's, and, but it's there, it's one of those on, he keeps going, you know, you guys can stop anytime. Yeah. And they just keep <laughs> coming at him. He's like, you can stop this anytime. Like, <laughs> it, it really is one of the more efficient character just this is everything you need to know about this character and it's uh, peter berg directing who has always been good at shooting action scenes and sure enough right off the bat i, I actually think it's a really solid fighting no, no, sequence no. sorry uh, my, uh, for everyone i just uh, for which is great for an audio podcast i waved my hand oh right like i, I think he's peter, had a mixed career yes. but he has done some films i genuinely really like agreed i love the kingdom and i really yeah. enjoy this um uh, he's he's better known for always now i don't think he's capable of making a film without mark Wahlberg. In mm-hmm. it, but you know that's. Uh, I wish he had become had had that relationship with and Dwayne Johnson. I, I think this may have been Peter Berg's first big hit too. I want to say. I want to say it is too. I mean, outside of doing Friday Night Lights, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so he ends up as one last bounty. He's got to get the guy William Lucking, who plays the guy uh, who he who, who is the boss. Says my son, he's a fuck up. Uh, he's in Brazil chasing some treasure or some shit. Just go and get him and bring him back here. Do whatever you have to. And he goes down there, and it's like the super corrupt mining town run by Christopher Walken, which right off the bat, you're like, Christopher Walken is the big bad guy? Oh, I am going to yeah. like this Who, movie. Christopher Walken playing Christopher Walken. Oh, totally. No no mistake <laughs> like, about it. It's like Nick Cage when he turns it up to 11. That's Christopher Walken in this movie. Yeah, he is like, yeah, it's it's the, the level that you want Christopher Walken at the whole time. Um, uh, and he's like, yeah, go get the kid. Uh, but uh, like, uh, bring it back. And then you owe me money. And um, so the deal is he finds a kid, but the, Chris, Sean William Scott, but Scott is very un uncooperative and despite the fact clearly he could not kick the rock's ass keeps trying to act as if he could to peacock feather his way out of situations uh and they end up on a romancing the stone type journey through the jungles of brazil dealing with a bunch of capoeira fighting guys and like which is the best sequence in the whole movie where the rock has to take on a whole village of of like really short total badasses who who for no reason are swinging on vines. Yeah, but it's, well, no reason except it looks amazing. It looks amazing. <laughs> Which, 
is this entire film. Like, there's the sequence where they get attacked by wild monkeys. There are so many things in this movie that if you take a step back, make no sense. That's but true. It's okay. And like, uh, the, the guy who has made a career out of a stuttering Scottish man plays the most stuttering Scottish man you've ever seen in your life. And nails it out of the park. Yeah, I can't it, think it, of his Bre- name. Uwen Bremer, Bremner, um, <laughs> who was known as Spud in Train Spotting. Uh, but uh, Rosario Dawson, as you mentioned earlier, plays the love interest for Dwayne Johnson, who's kind of a rebel leader. That even though originally and, she seems to be an uncaring bartender, and that's like, no, she's a she's secretly a rebel leader. This is her Cameron Diaz and the Mask movie, where I look at her in this, and I'm like, I. You're like a different human being than you were just a few years later. I am not saying plastic surgery because I think that she just aged up and got more beautiful, but yeah. it's amazing how much she changes. By the way, the the main guy who he's uh who uh Dwayne Johnson's fighting in that short people fight is Ernie Ray's Jr., who you're like I was like, he looks really familiar. Yeah, he's in The Last Dragon, Red Sonia, uh Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles one and two, Surf Ninjas, a bunch of other movies. He's one of those guys who like when you want a super badass Asian guy, like in American Hollywood films, this is the guy you call. Wait, is he the pizza guy from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Two? I don't know. <laughs> oh my god, I just this saying, just blew my mind. Uh, he's in Indiana Jones, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, Avatar, Alice in Wonderland, um, a shit ton of stuff. So, like, oh. one of those guys, you're like, oh, that's, I've seen him in stuff. Well, thanks but, a lot, Chris. Now I have to go watch the 80s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. No, movies. you really don't. <laughs> um, anyway, like I said, this is Mill Creek. It comes with the Blu-ray and the DVD. You know what's weird? Is the Blu-ray did not work for me. I had an issue with it, too. Did you with the audio was off? Um, I had trouble loading the disc, and it halfway through the movie, I got like a weird artifacting issue and had to shut down. Okay, so something is up with it, because I sent them a message. I was like, hey, the audio is out of sync. And they're like, you're the only person who's reported this no, no, problem. I, I, I'm I like, issues. I don't know what to tell you. I use the, I, I have, I own like four Blu-ray players, and this is my best, rely, most reliable one, and I've watched probably 30 movies on it since then without a problem. Yeah. Uh, it was your Blu-ray. <laughs> I don't know why you didn't have the same problem, but a different one. But something's fucked up with the coding. So buyer beware is all I'm saying. Uh, next up is Do It Yourself. This is being released by Artsploitation Films. It's a very different movie from what Artsploitation yeah. usually puts out, which more tend to do horror releases. This is more sort of a cyber thriller so, yeah. but pocket film sort of it I, feels like it's it's like um it feels a lot like what's that tom clancy series splinter cell but where if you were like what? not a master spy you were like just a regular dude okay. who happened to have some skills like it really does because he does the same shit that the, the guy in, in the splinter cell series okay. does. Like, i'm gonna tweak this thing and i'm gonna use it to change right, this I and guess. i'm gonna hide right. under a box now and i'm gonna move it this way and hope that no one sees me um so uh, yeah which is that's the title this guy who's like uh who is an ex-con. He's being held prisoner in a strangely active porn studio by uh, this businessman. Uh, he needs him to videotape a confession of crime so that uh, his boss can get released from prison. Who's being who was accused of said crimes? And the guy in question, who's want, they want him to do the videotape, knows that the moment he does this, they're going to kill him, no matter what they're telling him. They're going to kill well, him. Yeah, and, and we know that he's not wrong because two seconds after he tells the audience that 
we watch them kill somebody. Right. Uh, so he realizes that he has very little time to get out of this, uh, and he just kind of uses everything that he has on hand to get his way out of the situation, including porn props, which is kind of awesome. Um, I think that this is a movie that is, has a lot of really clever ideas in it, and if anything, it just needed to be tightened up more. So- I also I had very mixed feelings about this movie. I, I agree that there's a lot of good ideas. The story on paper is great, uh, and honestly, the director for the most part, like he, he tells a story at least. He makes some interesting choices, but I feel like the movie he wanted to tell is at odds with how he told it. Yeah. So like. First and foremost, the movie is very muted from a color scheme point of view. And the way the actors portray their character is, is very indie thriller. It's where they talk quietly and hush and it's, it's dour. But the story and the setup is super loud and funny and bombastic and they're trying to make a funny movie. Yeah, all these side characters, all these little mob enforcers and stuff each have their own sort yeah. of quirky, funny personality. Like, I, this movie desperately needed a, and this is such a, a, a picky thing to complain about, but it's real. It needed a new color balancing. Okay. And it, it, it needed to, to me, this movie needed to feel like a Guy Ritchie type of movie where it's, it's super colorful and outlandish and big, whereas they have this big story and they're telling it in a super small way. Well, it's, and it, like at the same time, like super they, low budget. Don't, true. Yeah. But they don't do a bunch with the porn setting either. There's yeah. like, not as much as you think. Gag. Not as much as you think. Yeah. Like, you think it ties into it better? It feels like the, Best action movie Hollywood blacklist script, like, and, ever. And also, I, I kind of felt like this is... This felt like a script written in the late 90s after Pulp Fiction came out, when everyone was trying to do Tarantino dialogue, but not really getting it. Okay. And so... so the it, film itself acknowledges that, though. Well, the... Yeah, like it says at one point in there... Uh, so, a lot of... There are a lot of... It's a Greek action film. There's a lot of references to other Greek action films that were missed on us, because we yeah. don't watch a lot of Greek action films. I mean... I, I've seen Evil in the Time of Heroes. Other than that, I don't have to I, tell I you. Saw um, uh, but there's a line where the main character says, along with most Greek action movies, we're simply a wannabe Hollywood knockoff. Yeah, <laughs> which like, is okay. true. Yeah. Like, uh, and there's a lot of totally references to Hollywood movies. <laughs> um, it, it just It's a movie that's like the blueprint for a really great movie, but it's not a really great movie. Is it wrong for me to say that I really would enjoy watching an over-the-top American remake of this movie? No, because I agree with you. Or a better-financed Greek version, because this has got everything that should be a great movie, and it's just not close enough to there. It's it's so unfinished. Now, the problem shown about the color balancing, I can't help but start to wonder if it has something to do with our exploitation. Their Blu-ray releases are beautiful, but their DVD releases have been, like, super dark and muted colors and everything lately. And I'm like, is there something wrong with y'all's DVD production okay. lately? I mean, their Blu-rays have looked great. They put out uh, Snow Snowflake, which looked amazing a few months ago. A great movie I highly recommend. But at the same month, they put out uh, Christmas Blood, a DVD release that was like so dark, I had to tweak the like, settings on my television I, set I just to watch it. I feel to complain about it, but it's all so dark and blue. And it, it, this is getting oddly specific, but like this movie should have been yellow and red and, oh, and absolutely. very colorful. Uh, <laughs> and like at the the end of the movie, they have this moment where 
it's meant to be a breather of like, okay, so we're done. This is through. We've made it. And I was like, oh, I, I, I get, I, I guess this has been harrowing. Okay, <laughs> cool. It wasn't as harrowing <laughs> as we may have been led to believe. Our next film comes, we're going back and forth from different companies here, but uh, from Arrow releasing Colobos, I kind of remember seeing this on the shelf uh, at video stores in Austin at one point. It came out in 1999. I never picked it up back then because it just looked like kind of a generic horror film. Colobos is not a generic horror film, but it also is like, it's both a really terrible film and a really interesting kind of trying new things film. It's so trying to be something different that it fails at, but it's so trying that you're really rooting for it the I, whole I time. I can't disagree. That's <laughs> kind of perfect. Uh, <laughs> it begins with stuff that was actually a whole like uh, f- uh, framing device that was, it was added in reshoots because apparently once they were finished with the movie, it was pointed out to them, uh, this isn't even an hour, guys. They had to go back and film new stuff <laughs> and create a framing device with uh, this couple finds this girl who's really fucked up and wounded like crazy who keeps saying the word Colobos. Uh, and then it goes, the same girl, Amy Weber, who actually ended up becoming a uh, relatively well-known WWE diva later on. Okay. Um, who doesn't look like in this movie. She's just like, you know, like 90 pounds soaking wet, pretty much. But um, she is an artist uh, who has agreed to take place in an experimental film, which, let's face it, is basically Big Brother. This yeah. is like, I think this came out about a year before the American Big Brother started, but, you know, the the MTV show was already on, things like that. And the director had said, this movie was basically because we hated that MTV show so bad that we just wanted all the characters to die, so we wrote a movie where that happened. Which is funny, because <laughs> they don't really do anything with the you're-being-watched concept no, at all. No, and it is that they, it's like, set, and it's weird it. that they, they comes out, they, they meet the director who's like, hey, it's so great to work with you. Like, oh, he's really nice. And then when people start, when he leaves and people start getting murdered in the house, you're like, well, how could it be that guy? He's so nice. And sure enough, it's not. But all that sort of like, oh, yeah, it feels like, oh, yeah, we forgot to put that scene in there. Yeah. We'll add it in in post, which indeed it's there eventually. Like, yes, the director also got killed. But like, who is doing the killing? And it's just watching these roommates that are are, are sort of like cliches of like horror movie annoying people die one after the other and with the occasional nude sequence and what have you that you expect from a slasher except all of a sudden the movie decides that it wants to be completely bizarre and abstract and hallucinatory and about halfway through and it starts being being like wait is this a slasher or is it like a more nightmare and elm streety type thing and I don't even think the movie knows. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't at all. But it gets really biz- entertainingly bizarre. And the kills are kind of amazing. They are great kills. Like, I, w- I spent the first portion of this movie kind of rolling my eyes at, at acting that I still don't know if it was brilliantly bad or just bad. Sure. Uh, and then the first kill happens, and it's like, what the fuck? Oh, my... And every kill after that is equally up there. Who the killer is, is stupid. It makes no sense. But at least the kills are great. And then the fact that they had to add in a framing device makes sense. Because watching the movie, it kind of hits an end. And then it seems like it's building to a twist. Yeah. And then just... 10 minutes of movie goes by and like, to a point that I kept going, Oh, like, like are, 
are we just watching this person live their life now? Like, is <laughs> is that just what this is? Yeah. It just keeps going. Like, I checked the running time. and was like, no, there's like eight minutes left. Okay. And then they do the twist eight minutes later. And it's yeah. like, oh, like, okay, cool. Which, once again, was that, that added framing device? Like, we just need to pad this thing out so distributors will take it. And it feels it. Yeah. Um, but that whole, you know, with the bulk of the movie is a deeply flawed but also very entertaining yeah. slasher, weird psychedelic slasher that owes a lot of debts to Suspiria. I mean, in a way that's so obvious that you that like you can't miss it and not sort of like this is the homage so much as we're just going to rip this off. So <laughs> with like the way it does the lighting where it's like, for some reason, this room is really brightly lit in red and green. <laughs> no good reason. And suspiriently, she's like, yeah, because there's these giant red and green windows that the lights coming through here. It's like, no, we just thought that was a good look for the rec room. <laughs> so, like, the movie is technically a nineties film, which I'm realizing a lot of these are, but it feels more in tune with the late seventies, early eighties slashers. Like, uh, there was the one we watched with uh, the Sex in the City lady at an insane asylum. Mm-hmm. That this feels like that kind of a movie. If you're into those late 70s, early 80s, super goofy, you can't tell if they're parody or not horror films. This is one of I those. think this is just right up your alley, and you will have a lot of fun with it. I mean, I can't blame anyone who would look at me startled and go, seriously, you kind of enjoyed, you enjoyed watching Colobos? I'm like... This is a movie for really hardcore horror nerds who, who like have been through the ringer already yeah. and are just shocked to see there's something like this out there that actually is as entertaining as it is yeah. still left for them to see. <laughs> you know, there's, I often am, all, I'm always shocked when there's like, wow, I missed one. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> um, there's, a lot of bonus features on here. There's a 22 minute in the maker making of Colobos with uh, interviews with the co-writers and co-directors uh, and producers. There's an interview with act- actor Ilya Volok in here for 10 minutes. There's Slice and Dice, the music of Colobos. Once again, they've always got a piece on the music uh, from composer William Kidd. There's a behind-the-scenes image gallery. There's a 10-minute Super 8 short film by the director that he made at 12 called Super Heldin with an optional commentary. Uh, There's Rediscovering (laughs) Colobos, six minutes of weird snippets from uh, the... The United Kingdom theatrical uh, release of the film last year that took place when they were re-releasing. So it's a lot of festival footage. Excuse me. Uh, there's the 15th anniversary trailer, the original trailer, trailer, and audio commentary with the directors. Uh, and then, of, of course, as always with Arrow, a nice insert booklet. Well, our last film we are going to talk about this week is Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. More like The Crimes of J.K. Rowling. God. Jesus fucking I, Christ. I, I have never had more conflicted feelings about a... Who's Potterverse movie than this one. <laughs> Who's conflicted? This movie sucks. <laughs> well, like, so, yeah. I, I, so I, I'm not going to get too terribly deep into the whole controversy with Cassie and Johnny Depp, which they shouldn't have, because quite frankly, Colin Farrell was a better bad guy. Yeah, we had Colin Farrell, who's God. amazing. What I, the I'm fuck not going to get into the controversy of whether or not Dumbledore is gay because he is and the fact that they don't show him kissing is so stupid. Well, I don't I don't even have, they'll get into that in the later it, films. Well, so, whatever. whatever. Just, 
like it, it shouldn't be a thing. Yeah, but goddamn J.K. Rowley for making it be a thing. It's just I don't I don't even that doesn't so, bother me. There's three more films to come, assuming that they still want to make them at this point. No, no, this made money. I don't doubt okay. that they're going to continue. I, hopefully, they'll listen to the critics and go, "We need to fix something," which would be not let J.K. Rowling write the screenplay so, all by herself. I think I figured out what it is. I, I, I've dialed it down, and, and first of all, I defy you to tell a plot description of this movie. Oh, it's almost impossible. Because, so, I don't think J.K. Rowling knows how to write an ensemble. If you take this movie and peel back all of the side characters and tell it exclusively from the point of view of Newt Scamander, meaning, Played by we Eddie find Redman. out... yeah. De- Great job, too. He does a good job in the movie, and I love his character. I like that he is a gentle hero. Like, we need more of that. But if you just focus on his story, this could be a good story. But she wants to tell this huge story. She's so in love with her world that she spends ungodly amounts of time building up characters that do not matter. Yeah. And... Like and, and like, just, like I said, the ultimate point where I was like, okay, fuck this movie. There's a point where a character tells the history with an extended, like, ten minute flashback of what happened and where the the sort of like the character in here who is the in both of these Fantastic Beast films is the one everybody is chasing, played by uh, what's his name Ezra uh, Miller Miller. And then they're done, and another character goes, "That's not what happened at all." And they tell another story yeah. with a flashback. Like, why did we have to watch that entire? Fl- I mean, it would have been okay if that had happened at the beginning of the movie, and then forty minutes later, we're like, okay, no, it turns out that all the information you were going on wasn't true. Here's the real story. But literally, they are sandwiched right next to each other. Like, it's the same scene. And I was like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, so I, I, I was kind of into the stories of basically every character from the first one that came into this. And quite frankly, the first movie has the same issues. Yeah. Just less bad. Like, uh, it's not as bad. The, the, the psychic girl, like I, I actually, I know everybody got pissed off with what happens with her character. I bought it. I did and not. I, because I like the idea of her being a psychic and a sweet person, but because of the fact that she can read everybody's thoughts, she kind of sees everybody as objects less than actual living people. Yes, but the, the thing is, is that that's me justifying. Then it's not really. In why the can't she read Grindelwald's thoughts and tell what his real motivations You're right. are? You're right. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that that was good. <laughs> just I'm saying. just saying like, like the things that people complained about to me were not the problems with this movie. This is one of the first times I can legitimately look at a film and go, yes, the problem is the script. Because a lot of, like, like, you see a terrible movie that's just filled with tropes, and you can easily find out, no, no, the original script was really good, the director just bought shit. David Yates has made, what, five of these now? Yeah, he should be and really like, great at it. He has proven that he can make a damn fine Harry Potter. He's made film. some of the best ones. So, like, I, I don't think it's really him. I can't help but go, this is Rowling. It is. Her inability to build a script over 
anything that isn't just a single POV character. Like I said, there is no other credited writer but Rowling on this one. This Even is, on the last one, there were other credited writers yeah. who worked with her. Here she wrote the whole script by herself, and it shows that she doesn't know how to write a screenplay. And the thing is, like the production design is still good. The creature design is still sure. kind of amazing. I love the creatures we see in this movie. Yeah, especially the, the big Chinese dragon guy yeah. character. That's awesome. Agreed. There are still some legitimately interesting sequences in this movie, and it's something that I will <laughs> I will admittedly probably watch again because the world is still interesting, but the movie that is in that world is kind of a pile of shit. It is. Uh, I, I actually tried watching this again. I got about forty minutes into it, and I just. I just gave up. I was like, and it's weird because I usually can watch rewatch even the worst big budget Hollywood films and it gets some amount of enjoyment out of like the, the spectacle of it. And this is just fucking dull through most Dude, of it. I'm it, telling it, you for the next one, and, and I know that J.K. Rowling does not listen to this podcast. No, although, good, no chance. Just, good God, please. God, do. God bless the woman, right? God <laughs> yeah. bless her. She's made so much She's great stuff. Amazing, She's like, given over half of her her money to charity. She's a terrific person. But you can't be great at everything, and writing screenplays is just not your forte. I think they desperately need to cut every character who is not the the non magic guy, only because he's Dan Fogler is just amazing. I like and Dan Fogler. In the, this. If you're not Dan Fogler, the psychic girl, the romantic interest who I should remember her name, but I can't, or Newt Scamander. You shouldn't be a character who gets real screen time in this movie because they're the ones who the core story seems to be like. They're the ones she cares about. And the problem is that, like you were saying, like oh, this is a this uh, Jackie Rowling cares so much about constant. Like she personally runs the web, the Harry Potter website. Uh, what is it? Pottermore. Pottermore, and constantly adds stuff to this encyclopedic site of thing like changing the rules as she goes. Of like, oh, there's stuff I didn't tell you before. Like the whole uh, Dumbledore is gay came from there at one point. Which, where she's like, oh, he is. Which who. Who cares? But like, yeah. like a- anyway, the point is she constantly keeps adding to it. She cares about all these details. There's a lot of characters in here here only as like, oh, well, isn't this a cool detail? Like Nagiri, like literally, not kidding. Voldemort Snake is a character in this film as a love interest for Ezra Miller because she used to be human, played by Claudia Kim. And you're like, nobody needed that bit. And I, nothing was more telling than uh, Zach, who's on Books and Beer, said to me. Like, my wife, Taylor, watched this, and she was like, oh, now I know how you felt when the prequels came out. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, this is the same problem. And what pisses me off is, like, you can see the kernel of a really good story in here. Because mm-hmm. it, it could be good. It, it is interesting watching someone who is not literally just a snake Hitler, like rise to power, a charismatic villain who is grabbing the minds of the magicians around and watching that, that era of fear that got referenced in Harry Potter, but we really never saw it happen because we were watching the kid's story and that was all that mattered. So like, that's a good idea. And I even like the idea of Dumbledore not really being able to fight against uh, Grindelwald. Like, that's kind of interesting. Even though, thank God, they fixed that at the end so we can get but more like, Jude Law in the next movie. Because this movie needed more Jude Law as Dumbledore. It's, just, it's still not done well. Like, that's yeah. the thing. It's a laundry list of really interesting, cool ideas that she just stomps into the ground. Agreed. 
uh, the extras here, there's 10 uh, minutes of J.K. Rowling, a world revealed, which of course is J.K. Rowling basically talking about doing the thing. Uh, Wizards on screen, fans in real life for 20, almost 20 minutes, uh, interviewing all the cast members. There's distinctly Dumbledore for nine and a half minutes with David Yates, the producer, the costume designer, and Jude Law talking about designing, basically coming up with how they dis- chose to do the younger version of Dumbledore, which obviously a lot of thought went into, and I actually, the one thing I go, you guys nailed that. This, yeah, this young, Dumbledore, young Dumbledore is perfect. Like, we need more of him. In fact, screw this series. Let's just see a spinoff like, <laughs> about young Dumbledore doing a bunch of shit. Um, there's uh, six clips called Unlocking Scene Secrets that come uh, that total out at about a little over 49 minutes, which is just a breakdown of how they did a bunch of FX scenes. And then there's a 14 and a half minutes of deleted scenes, none of which are totally notable, and most of them don't finish uh, have finished visual effects. Yeah, like, I don't know. Oh, by the way, it advertises that this is an extended cut, Does only it? the digital copy. I didn't, as I say, I didn't notice anything. Yeah, the 4K copy is not extended. The Blu-ray copy is not extended. The digital copy is extended. That comes with it if you buy it. The but you have fuck. to watch the digital, which is not, of course, in 4K. So that makes no fucking sense whatsoever. Um, I, I don't, and it's not a huge, I think it's like seven or eight mi- minutes. And all of those are just stuff that's in the deleted scenes, apparently, on the whole. It's like... Eh, I don't Sadly. need a longer version of Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Though, God, so. yeah, you, you. Sadly, I can unequivocally say this is the first bad Harry Potter movie. It, it, the first genuinely, like, like there's no way you can contend that it's yeah. not. All the, uh, even the weakest Harry Potter films have good elements to them. They're still inherently, well, still inherently still competent watch- stories. They're still very watchable. Yeah. They're even just if they have different. problems with them. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, I probably the weakest one before this was the previous fantastic beasts, uh, uh, yeah. which even then is still super watchable Dude, and fun. Fantastic beasts is kind of a muddled movie with a lot of great ideas that just has a shit climax. Yeah. I've had one of those, but it was college. Yeah, I don't talk about that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I always pull out before. Also, anyway, uh, and I can sorry. say this is the second time I watched this movie, and I did make it all the way through. Yeah, and oh my god, is this log? I do not know that I will. Like, I know I said earlier, I'll watch this again. I don't know that I will. I just like I said, I tried. Like, I really tried. I, I feel I might like- watch. I might like do one of those. At one and a half speed watches before the next one comes out, just so I can be like, wait, what happened in the I'm last one? I'm not going to lie. If the third is not a marked improvement over this, yeah, I might be done with Fantastic Beasts. Yeah. Just like, I just don't care anymore. I'm kind of like, why don't you go back to writing books, JK? You're yeah. really, really just, good at that. We just need to be grateful that we got like seven really good Harry Potter but films. Unbelievably, that whole first series is terrific. Yeah. You know, unbelievably. The, the worst is okay. Yeah. Yeah, probably the worst is the first one. And that's just because it's for kids. Yeah. It's, it's just legitimately a kid's But it's film. exactly like the books. Yeah. That they start off for very young readers, and as they go along, they grow up with the kids. You know what's interesting? I think that I think the Fantastic Beasts movies would make better books. Because then she could take the time to flesh out the 80 I side characters. Completely agree. And then it'd be like, oh, I get why this is important. Why this character died, I felt something. Instead of, oh, the... 
they've been in five minutes and four of them were exposition. I don't care. I want to double down on yet again. Please, 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 someone in Hollywood, listen. No more fucking prequels to giant franchises. Hey. Just stop that yeah. shit. Why do you keep doing it? It keeps not working. I don't care that the movie made money because think about how much more money you would have made if the fans had actually enjoyed watching it. Like if critics had actually enjoyed it, if non-fans had been showing up in droves to see it because they heard how good it was. This is not good. Prequels, yes, I'm not saying all prequels have been bad, but the bulk well, of no. them have. So here's and like what it is: prequels and reboots continue on forward. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at you, people controlling the Star Trek universe no, as well. So listen, move forward. <laughs> I legitimately believe you can tell a interesting story in the past of an established universe. The problem is when you make a true prequel when you want everything it, to it, it connects yeah. and it it's so connective and it's so heavily referential referential that it it's not a new story it becomes about check out how that thing from the thing you love started that's not interesting if you're going to tell us a movie that a story that takes place in the 20s tell us a new story i don't give a fuck about how this ties to harry potter i want to know about the rest of the world and these characters i would much rather see what happens like next with the characters from harry potter or even a generation later what I, happened to harry potter's and the other friends and there's children you know and, and, and i love that we're we're I love that these are about adults and aren't kids, and this isn't a school. This yeah. is real wizards. We don't need to, like, like yeah. I don't want to see, like... didn't need to be in the 20s. I don't want to see them take it and go, what we're saying, and go, oh, okay, we'll do another series that's set at Hogwarts where, you know, it's no. now their kids. Like, no, I don't want... That's not what I'm saying. Actually, what I'd love to see, it's, it was a, a prank on April Fool's, but there was a prank for a television series based on the adventures of the Aurors, where it was, like, a, a group of Aurors who go out and solve magical crimes, and it was like, I would fucking killed to see or, that how about, <laughs> like, like let's realize that in the harry potter world basically they stopped hitler right yeah so talk about what that looks like afterwards let's how say, do you how do you come back let's from say like that what yeah or maybe you do a thing where they actually stopped the real Hitler through magic. And now there's like this building force of darkness that they held at you know bay, what? but they're having trouble figuring out how to keep it from releasing because there's a Jedi balance of the universe shit. And now they've like held it at bay for too long. And they're like, what are we going to do? I've, I've realized what happened here. So back in the With past, before there were toilets, apparently all the wizards would just shit themselves and then magic away the poop. This is established <laughs> canon now. This is established canon. So I think when they just magicked away the poop, it became this movie. And now there's a poop universe, and so here we go. That's what it is. This is where all that shit It's the point where we see the Harry Potter <laughs> Millennium Falcon fly in over the planet, and the titles just say, Zangor, the poop planet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I broke Aaron. <laughs> okay, I'm done. All right, we're good. That's it for uh, digital noise. Sorry that we went out a bit, bit, uh, a bit uh, on Harry Potter and what's wrong with it and how you should fix it. Uh, or not Harry Potter, I guess, but Fantastic Beasts. Whatever, <laughs> whatever. You know what we meant. 
uh, I'll be, we'll be back. It might be another two weeks or so because literally I just handed off a stack to, to John like yesterday <laughs> to watch. So be about two weeks for the next one. But, uh, thank you for listening. Please click on those Amazon links, if you will, on the page, like each of the images of the movie, uh, that are on the actual page on one of us.net leads you to an Amazon page to buy that said thing from if you don't want to buy that thing anything you buy starting from one of our links we get a kickback and of course that doesn't hurt so do that there you go there you go